Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Escaping Asturias, the podcast where myself and my partner in crime, Amy, rewatch, reminisce, and review everything Doctor Who from 2005 to president to president as president president to president. <laughs> Good grief, Rich! My name is Rich, and I'm joined by the ever lovely Amy. Hello, welcome. I love how that's just my intro. You know what, now, I'm just the ever lovely, the ever lovely Amy. Amy, even though that is the biggest lie I've ever told. Hey, that's me. <laughs> But welcome to episode three of Escaping Castaberus, where we have watched, or rewatched, I should say, The Unquiet Dead, aired on the 9th of April 2005, the first historical episode of Doctor Who since. I don't actually know what the last historical episode of Doctor Who would no, have been. Neither do I. Because it would have been something in 1989, but I don't know what it is. But it's the first one of New Who, so. It is. And it's the first episode of New Who. Uh, in the set in the past that did a lot of things right um mm-hmm. so kicking things off uh let's talk about the people behind the camera or well, not necessarily behind the camera but this is the first episode that uh series or now series veteran mark gatiss gonna say. penned who if you don't know who mark gatiss is he is a collaborator with stephen moffat uh through things like sherlock and mm-hmm. Dracula, which I haven't actually watched, uh, and later on Doctor Who, and well, yeah, I mean actually no, because he did, he was doing Doctor Who with uh, Moffat first um, before Sherlock with T date Russell. Oh, was, was it? Yeah, yeah. When was Sherlock? When did Sherlock start airing? Was it two thousand? I don't. Was know. it two thousand and nine or two thousand eight? Shall Some, we have, should a we have a look? Let's have a quick Google because <laughs> I'm trying to think about the time. I don't know. I I love Sherlock, but Sherlock. I can't give you dates. Holmes no, series. No, just, no, just Sherlock. Just, just the word Sherlock. It, it came up with the same thing. <laughs> uh, first episode was 2010. Oh, in that case, then they probably were already sort of working together on Doctor Who because they'd have been penning up their ideas or for for Woo. series uh, five when Moff took over. But yeah, Mark Gatiss is first episode, so he's contributed a lot to Doctor Who over the last uh, 15 years. But this is obviously his stars first. in it, doesn't he? Uh, he does. He stars in it multiple in times. In the Lazarus experiment, uh, that's series three, and then he's in. Is that the first time he appears? Uh, as a character i want to say so yeah and then he does um 
Oh, what else? He, in terms of his, I can't give you all of his episodes off the top of my head with the stuff he wrote, but you know he appeared in uh, Matt Smith's era. He appeared as, as that guy with the eye patch who plays laser chess with Matt Smith. Oh yeah, that's he then appears on, though, as uh, the general in Twice Upon a Time, which we won't talk about yet because that's oh important. Uh, but he also is the man behind uh, An Adventure in Space and Time, which was the yes. uh, the 50th anniversary docudrama or bi- really biopic good. or something, which I think we, we are definitely going to do on this podcast mm. as an episode when we get to the 50th anniversary, but that's in like, uh, that's in seven, oh that's in seven series time. Seven years time. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's quite good. it's quite a long way away. But uh, he was the brand of the master mind behind that and he wanted to get an adventure in space and time up and running for the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, which was 2003. Uh, so Oof, he's been, been he's soon. been obsessed with Doctor Who for years. I don't know whether he did any Wait. big finish stuff throughout the 90s and early noughties. He wanted to do it before New Who came back? Yep. Oh, he did. Uh, cool. Or at least I'm pretty certain he did. Um he wanted to do he, he pitched the idea for Adventure in Space and Time for the four, for the 40th anniversary but uh, again it didn't get picked up um, but you know the Doctor Who fan base was, was rabid between 96 mm. and 2005 so and that was one of the things that he wanted to do so he, he'd had his foot in the door with the BBC with having pitched all of that and then lo and behold obviously Russell T Davies got him on uh, to mm-hmm. write The Unquiet Dead which was directed by Euros Lin which is actually a, a name I've not mentioned on the podcast yet uh, who has di- yeah who just has- doesn't she direct the first two as well uh, yeah he directed he directed episode, a ton of stuff throughout uh, Doctor Who like in he has directed how many one two three actually not that one one two three four five six seven eight nine ten uh, episodes or technically 11 because he did two two parts he did some torture stuff he did some sherlock so he's a collaborator with um with with steve with with doctor who in general so euros mm-hmm. has done quite a lot of uh of doctor who directing as well but yeah so this is the first episode set in the past um in new who so quite literally it opens with uh the doctor saying we've seen the future let's look at the past well, I was going to say you've you've had present, you've had future, you've had past. It's a very sort of good, quick summary it, of how it, Doctor Who can go in the future. Like here's one extreme bases. to the other. Yeah, and it also like it's the first episode bar the opening that's set on Earth. As much as um, the as much as uh, end of the world is set above the Earth, albeit five point five slash Apple slash twenty six years in the future, um, it's still it's still a way enough it's not like series 12 where mm. like everything was on earth or in some way yeah literally like at least they kind of get away with it um because as, as weird as it is the the planet earth isn't really the main focus of the end of the world but they come back no, to earth, it's they go back in time mm. uh, but this is the first cold open we get of the new series uh in fact uh it's only the third cold open in the entire series if third. you don't count the movie yeah because there's no um, cold open in Rose, because the Rose just comes no. straight in the title sequence. The cold open in um, uh, The End of the World is the Doctor and Rose in the TARDIS and then arriving on the station. But this is mm-hmm. the first... Uh, I was about to say, no, actually, I'm wrong. I was going to say it's the first uh, cold open without the Doctor in it. But technically, I'm wrong. Uh, it's the first cold open in New Who without the Doctor in it. The first cold open ever in um doctor who was in remembrance of the daleks if i remember rightly uh which takes 
which has the uh, the Dalek mothership hovering over Earth and lots and lots of um, voice lines coming up from Earth at various points in history and then the title sequence mm. kicks in. Um, cool. So Ashley, I tell a lie again. The Five Doctors has a cold open, but it's not So shot. basically, you've just lied I've just, to I've just everyone, run myself in a circle. So just ignore do- exactly what Rich just the said The Five about Doctors the opens, opens <laughs> with, with William Hartnell's uh, speech to Susan, so I can't really say it counts as a cold open because it wasn't an original cold open. Anyway, so... We see... Oh, um, <laughs> shut up. We'll move on with the episode. We see um, Mr. Sneed. Sneed. Uh, not Mr. Smee from Peter Pan. Mr. Sneed. I oh, know, I always think they say Smee. I did have to check that. It is Sneed. S-N-E-E-D. Uh, like sneeze, but with a D. <laughs> oh, no, he's Sneed. <laughs> Sneed. <laughs> um, and he's, he's there. He works in a, a funeral parlour uh, as an undertaker. And he's there like checking over the body of some poor old lady and he's with the grandson the rather, the rather dashing grandson Ooh. of this uh, of this lady and she wakes up strangles the poor bloke manages to snap his neck with one snap hand snap his neck which Cash. you know fair enough i mean obviously this old lady had some biceps on her uh, it's very um i was gonna say because you sort of don't really remember how kind of dark the like original series was because like mm. i mean the only other neck snapping that i remember is like literally from one of the most recent episodes which was um ascension of the cybermen or was it the one before that no what one am i thinking of the one where he appears in with um the one <laughs> oh, I gotta, I can't think. i'm trying to think now yeah the episode where they're in the house with the people in the house keeps throwing up fake walls to oh, try and make them oh, think oh, that... Oh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, the Haunting of the Validia from... Darty. That's the one. Even though technically, is... even though technically there's two there's two neck snaps in Unquiet Dead. Uh, yes, but... but yeah, like, I know what you mean. This is the yeah. sort of... Like, going back to it, you don't really remember it ever happening. No. Sort of like... The one in um, The Haunting of Validia Darty was sort of like, oh my God, did she just snap it? Did he just... What? Oh. Yeah, it was Whereas this is kind of like, oh. Oh, okay. okay. It's, quite, it's quite a strange neck snap. But yeah, so this go- this dude gets his neck snapped and... Uh, this woman is possessed by glowy blue stuff and off she wanders into the uh, the center of wherever they are and the titles roll and it's Ooh. quite a good setup like as much as uh the end of the world really sets things up very explicitly like we are at the end of the world the world is about to die <laughs> having oh fun and then <laughs> it, it goes from there whereas this properly says okay some something's afoot here uh yeah and- this is like yes you're, you're very good typical doctor who cold open which sets up the mystery like straight away yeah so we cut into the doctor and rose in the tardis and these are some of the best sequences i love how much the tardis is mm. present uh, i mean we have to, we did discuss this i think it was last week actually um about how the tardis is so present throughout series one yes um and that we have this wonderful thing of seeing the TARDIS in flight and how creaky and battered it is. Like, as much yeah. as we knew, if you knew the old series, you knew that the TARDIS wasn't exactly one-to-one perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, knew it would go wherever you ever you asked it to go. Um, the TARDIS here, you can tell it's creaky. And I love the fact that once they do eventually land in, uh, in Naples 1860, uh, that it just cuts to them on the floor laughing. There's no yeah. That like, was a bit of a weird cut. I it's thought. quite it's quite it obscure, was... um, but there they are on the floor laughing, and it just kind of shows how fun it must be to be in that room. Mm. Not only in in a sense within the show to hit to feel the TARDIS moving around like a ship, 
Like, it'd be interesting to have a companion with motion sickness in the future. I wouldn't get very far <laughs> in the TARDIS. Uh, but also, well, kind of... just for Christopher and Billy to be, like, stumbling around the place with some poor boy with the camera mm-hmm. going, oh, it's go- oh, it's all shaking. <laughs> oh, everything's rolling around. I was going to say, because when the episode kind of, when after the title sequence, when the episode opens and you you get this beautiful... I say beautiful, obviously, 2005 CGI and all that, but you get the wonderful shot of them actually flying through the time vortex, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen very often um, in kind of later series and stuff. But you sort of, the first view that you get from this uh, episode is actually kind of like the roof of or the ceiling of the TARDIS, yeah. which you never see, like really ever, do you? Like if somebody said, what does the ceiling of the TARDIS look like? I don't really think you'd be able to, no yeah um and the camera just kind of is there like basically made of jelly yeah and it's like oh 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 we're shaking oh okay this is straight into the action because <laughs> like similar to how that used to be done in the uh the old series they'd only build like half a tardis set uh mm. where it's it's like an open side you there's lots and lots of footage of the uh the tardis from the 2005 to 2010 uh being completely open you could see uh where the 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 rest of the uh the film crew would be and stuff it's only until i think it was matt smith's second tardis that actually built a full control room Uh, what was matt smith's second the silver one the the really clinical one not the one with the uh console up on the raised platform that was the first one the second tardis is the really steel cold oh kind of where you come down the stairs to it uh is that the one no because like no, no. amy comes down the stairs is that the one that capaldi has first it's, yeah capaldi has that one as well but it, right, capaldi's, I know which one capaldi's is better because it's warmer mm. and it has more mm. stuff in it like compete uh, matt smith's second tardis feel first yeah second tardis feels more like a ship rather than like mm. a living thing but um, yeah. but anyway yeah they, they built that one and jody whittaker's tardis they're all like full um, fully fully formed you can get the, you see the camera go round and round we'll probably mention mm-hmm. this when we get to those episodes and you, we can point out whenever Capaldi's monologuing and he's walking around the TARDIS and it's just like fully open and you see the camera rotate all the way around the uh, the control room so it must have been an absolute mm. bitch to shoot in there but it worked but anyway gotcha. yeah so yeah this TARDIS is completely open so you still only see the same uh, sort of angles of it and you, like you say the, the roof is something that probably isn't really that built you'll literally see like maybe a chunk of roof and that's mm. where as when high it started, as the camera I was goes. like what are we looking at like i didn't really remember how this episode started and then it panned down to them trying to and i also love the fact that you get the shots of them trying to fly the tardis like together like that's one thing that eccleston's doctor eccleston's doctor what am i talking about (laughs) eccleston's doctor does with rose is he literally like gets her involved he's like press that button do this you're not pressing that button try this together and it's almost like he's making it up as he goes along but he's just like throwing her along for the ride which a lot of the later doctors are like oh my god don't touch anything let me look cool like oh river song's touching the tardis or she's not allowed to do that it's like "Eh, Mm -hmm. whatever so they uh, arrive in 1860 naples or so they think uh, because the TARDIS has gone a bit, a bit, bit Pete-tong. Do lally. And do lally. Do lally. Do lally. And, uh, and they ended up in, in Cardiff. Now, we haven't obviously broached into the, the, the more specific setting as to who Mr. Sneed is and so on and so forth. Um, but the thing I love about Doctor Who, uh, especially the 2005 revival, is the fact that obviously it got shipped over to BBC Wales. Um to be shot you know majority of it shot in cardiff like mm. they did shoot stuff in episode one in london 
Uh, well, fun fact, actually, this was not shot in Cardiff. This was shot in Monmouth and Penarth in Swansea. Well, I mean, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean so much the fact that this episode specifically was shot in Cardiff, but they do. It's set in Cardiff because obviously mm-hmm. the, the TARDIS has taken them to 1869 Cardiff, not 1860 Naples. And the the thing about it is, Cardiff is lovely. I've been to Cardiff, as I said on episode one of this podcast, um, and it's really nice. But I love the fact that there's so much on the nose Cardiff about reboot Doctor Who. And this is the mm-hmm. first time it really becomes apparent because, you know, the entirety of Torchwood is basically set in Cardiff, or at least the first two yeah. scenes are set in Cardiff. There's so much stuff that happens in Doctor Who that's set in Cardiff, and it's actually stemmed from this episode. Uh, and I love the fact that they basically take the piss. Like, you know, oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not Naples, I don't care. It's Cardiff, and Rose is like, and then she just, oh. oh. And then the Doctor's <laughs> there, it's like, oh, I'm going to die, you're in a dungeon. In Cardiff. In Cardiff. <laughs> it's, it's, it reminds me of how um, The Simpsons gets away with um, slagging off Fox because they don't have mm. that, like, The Simpsons, and I think Family Guy of it as well are one of those few shows that Fox have that don't have that whole we're going to, like, really come down on you if you try and take the piss out of us. They get that option to do that. And it's almost as if Doctor Who had the same thing with Cardiff. It's like, ah, do you know what? Screw Cardiff. Let's make loads of jokes <laughs> about Cardiff. And I love it. It's so stupid. But they, yeah, they end up in Cardiff and we're introduced to uh, Gwyneth, who is Mr. Sneed's, uh, what would you say? Not not servant. I I mean, she's sort of kind of like an assistant, but like he's taken her in when her parents died. So So maybe kind of like a living and in assistant. I think they have those quite a lot. She she very much dresses (laughs) like a maid, but she seems to be a a jack of all trades and does a bunch of stuff and... uh, She's, I suppose she's kind of like his, uh, like her number, his number, his number two. But as much as she's yeah. not, she really isn't uh, in any way equals or even close to him due to the a mm. the, a the class divide and b the fact that she's a woman because this is eighteen sixty nine yep. for goodness sake. Yep. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, this this woman, this the stiffs are out walking again. Uh, let's go find her, and we're introduced to the fact that she has this thing called the sight. So she could seem to see where mm. people well, are. She could see into people's yeah. heads, supposedly, and she finds it ungodly. But she's been with it her. In- she's been with her their entire life. And no, since her parents died, wasn't it? Uh, I think she says later on they the ch- they they've been singing to me ever since my like mum departed or my mum sent the angels to me or so she says later. So I think it's since her parents died. Oh, I thought it was just generally. I think maybe it gets louder after the parent after her parents maybe. die or when the events of this episode begin to take place. But Gwyneth is played by the uh the lovely Eve Miles, who if you the know if you know Doctor Who and or Torchwood, then you'll know who Eve Miles is because she plays mm-hmm. Gwen Cooper. Uh in she plays her from does she appear in Doctor Who first, or is it is it Torchwood first? Um, it well, is Torchwood, Torchwood first. Was, yeah, is it Torchwood first? It is Torchwood first. For some reason, my oh. mind just went. Does she appear in Doctor Who as as Eve as 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 Gwen? But no, she does. She does appear in Doctor Who as Gwen, but after Torchwood. So she's the main character in in Torchwood alongside Captain Jack. But that's obviously something that we will only really dip into. We're not we're not doing Torchwood on this podcast. Mm, uh, sadly, mainly because we've only <laughs> just rewatched the first three series of Torchwood like not long yeah. ago. Um, <laughs> 
but that's like that that link to 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 Gwen we'll get to in a bit. But she but this is Eve Miles's first appearance in Doctor Who, and it is quite it is quite relevant because it is referenced upon uh, later in uh, at least Russell T Davies era, uh, and sort of in Torchwood as well. Um, and they 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 chase this old woman down to a theater because Mr. Charles Dickens is performing there. He's doing I'm guessing a, a reading. He just sort yeah, of goes like and stands I on stage. It's like a and story just, reading. Yeah, stands on stage and talks for a bit. And she has gone to sit in and watch this, even though she's been possessed by a gaseous ghost. She's there's a part of her that remembers where she wants to go or where she was going to go before she unfortunately passed. And she See, I the one thing I did pick up uh, towards the end of the episode, and it sort of plays out throughout the whole thing, is that mm. I feel like uh, the reason they potentially picked this to be a Charles Dickens kind of based adventure is because it's sort of reminiscent in like very, very subtle ways of um, the moral kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the moral journey that um, Scrooge goes on in A Christmas Carol, because obviously that was one of Dickens's sort of most famous stories. And it's sort of like, you know, at the beginning you see Charles Dickens and he's all kind of like, oh, there's like, you know, life is boring and there's nothing worth living and I've done all this and blah, blah, blah. And he's sort of just like ready to kind of give up. He doesn't really care about anything. And then he experiences these ghosts. And then towards the end of the episode, he's suddenly got a brand new attitude for life. And it's like, oh, that's kind of reminiscent of what happens to Scrooge, don't you think? Yeah, it's, I think it's because he, <laughs> he almost sees his death. Because, I mean, that's what happens with uh, mm. with Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas is it, it is future specifically. It's, yeah, it's Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas I didn't know whether it'd be like Christmas to come or something. No, yeah, um, something like that. But like, yeah, he sees his death and he changes his ways. And obviously, yeah, that's I've never thought of it like that. I've only, usually I've only thought about the Christmas Carol links in the fact that the way that they reintroduce the, the dead gran uh, character mm. is the fact that that Dickens is talking about uh, Scrooge's Marley's knocker. Ghost. And how he goes, he looks like that and there's the woman in the audience who bear in mind is there for every single shot of that like every yeah. time you look into the audience bar the real close-ups mm-hmm. uh you see that woman there she's not like slap bang in the middle she's not um she's kind of like she's not being left-ish. forced into the viewers to, like look she is there look 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 it's more of a subtle thing it's kind of like where's wally because as much <laughs> it is a bit as much as gwyneth says like she's i'm, she, I'm guaranteed she's in there she's going to see this uh this performance um that she might be wrong we don't know that Mm. Gwyneth is completely right yet Uh, but also it's kind of like you know obviously you can gauge that the because Gwyneth says oh she's going to see the great man you can kind of gauge that that great man is Charles Dickens given that it scripts to Charles Dickens in the very next shot but like it's not like you said there's no guarantee that she's there and it's kind of like you almost expect her to be backstage or like trying to sort of seek him out in some other but literally she's just sat there in the audience like some old woman just kind of like meh and then for some reason she's just like, you know what? I'm gonna get, I'm gonna start screaming. But then again, I think it's <laughs> well, because the, the Gelf can't actually stay in the bodies for too they can't long. Can't inhabit and just, the bodies for too long. Coincidentally, uh, she stood oh, up no, and spoke. She just stood up and screamed at just the right time to sort of hammer home the horror of uh, mm-hmm. of Scrooge's knocker. <laughs> oh, <ooh>, hello. <laughs> so yeah, the Doctor and Rose land and. Rose is about to go bounding out into the uh, into Cardiff or Naples, and um, the doctor stops her and says, "You can't go there looking like that." So you know, 
first left, second right, past the bins, under the stairs, blah, 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 go to the wardrobe, get changed. Go and find mm-hmm. something that's... Uh, uh, she must relevant. have a bloody remarkable memory. I know. Because if you asked me to... If, if Literally, if he stood there and he went, second left, first right, down the stairs, past the bins, blah, blah, I'd be like, I'm sorry, where? <laughs> <laughs> Can you please pull up some signs, Doctor, so I know where I'm going? <laughs> so... It's it's kind of it's it makes perfect sense the fact that Rose dresses in period dress, but something I've said in ups and downs for uh, series eleven uh, was the fact that period dress is so underused. Like Seldom they, they used. go to the past so much, and yet it's not always used. No, I mean you look at like I mean I couldn't really tell you if Amy and Rory ever wore period dress apart from when Rory was the last centurion, but that's that a doesn't really different. count. It's not really yeah. period dress. It's even like um, in series two, Tooth and Claw, Rose isn't wearing um yeah uh, period dress. She's in dungarees for God's sake, and then but then that kind of lends itself to the plot because they didn't expect to be there. Well, exactly. They expected but it's to be like it's more else. when they deliberately go to the past and find mm. themselves not in in period dress, uh, and it's like guys, come on. Like make, make the, the effort. make the effort because it does look strange, and it, especially since like the doctor in this episode literally goes, "You can't go out there looking like that," yeah. and then in the future just kind of lets his companions wander around wearing anything. Maybe that's just um, that's probably just Eccleston's doctor. Eccleston's doctor, yeah. Because I don't, I don't. Well, they do go to the past again, but not by far in the series, apart from uh, Empty Child Doctor Dances. But again, they mm. don't expect to go there because they're chasing a tulership but again we'll get to that uh, in episode eight i think it is that whatever episode it is um but yeah the fact that they the fact that rose goes and gets changed she comes back in this beautiful dress and the doctor's like holy balls hello you're hot oh boy <laughs> oh damn <laughs> <laughs> um that just that uh i don't think they really realized i mean i'm assuming this was mark gatiss writing it in, or maybe just the general they're in the past let's reinforce it's the past they're gonna dress up like it's the past Mm. It's amazing to think that when you look forward through the 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 eleven series that came after, how few times they actually made the effort for period dress, mm-hmm. and it's kind of sad. And it's like if it if it's just the case that they're going back in time and they don't realize it, write some deliberate ones in. Like yeah. come on, like even when you're thinking of something like uh, uh, the fires of Pompeii, is, is Donna dressed up in? period guess no it. she's wearing like a um she's wearing like purple, purpley blue she? kind of tunic dress it's not, thing it's not like super out of date no but, but it's very it's, it's still not very it's still modern quite compared modern. to bloody yeah, it's like <laughs> roman they, I, they, 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 I think they think they're in uh i think they think they're in rome before they realize they're in pompeii or something mm-hmm. so it's like again it's a deliberate you're going back make the effort to make yeah. it period and that's something unquite does so well and this is only episode three of the entire mm-hmm. series if they can get it right this early on how can they keep getting it wrong as time goes i suppose forwards? they kind of just think like we've seen it maybe like, it's just out of budget bit. oh we can't be bothered to buy mm, another true. big dress or we don't have the the means or the ability to rent or beg borrow steel to make however many extra costumes because i mean they they had a pretty substantial crowd in the theater uh mm. i was looking at some of the uh actors as it was panning across them and how odd some of them look dressed up like mm. that uh, and some like what look like very much fake uh, big fluffy sideburns and things that just looks a bit odd but again that's just down to 2005 production obviously the BBC weren't going <laughs> to chuck loads at this series and as we said last week they definitely wasted most of the budget on the CGI in episode 2 
I um the thing about the period dress though is I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like a, a thing of we can't be bothered or mm. like we haven't got the means. I'd say it's more character establishment in some cases because like Rose is she's like the first companion for what it's worth like in New Who. And um you know so we're getting to know her as a person but we're also getting to know like the role of a companion through her whereas later on when like you know after she leaves and Martha comes along and then Donna comes along you sort of you understand them by then what the role of the companion is yeah. so there isn't such a necessity to establish the companion so therefore the period dress is so like necessary it's to establish the character because Martha is a very different character from Rose yeah. and again Donna is a very different character from Martha so the purpose of them not being in period dresses to establish kind of who they are as a character but also to set up jokes a lot of the time i mean yeah. i think i remember some sort of joke about amy being in a miniskirt in yeah, like later um, episodes there's a or point something. where i think rory drops something and the doctor says like gla- glass floor because like amy stood above him mm. and he looks up and i'll see hey yeah uh <laughs> but no, no you're right uh whenever i think about the companions you always think about like a i've always put it as default skin like when you when you think of um when you think of martha you think of default skin martha i think of red leather jacket red leather jacket jeans default donna she's wearing that like sort of muted blue top with a jacket over it what yeah. she's wearing at the end of the series you think of default mm-hmm. amy she's wearing I Amy's think she's wearing, wearing a, the miniskirt. Wearing a miniskirt. And I think she's wearing a little jacket as well, like a leather jacket. A jacket of some description. Rory's wearing a plain shirt. You think of Clara. She's wearing... Um, I Fucking think, who cares? <laughs> I think she's wearing the... Uh, um, I always think what she's wearing at the end of the series when she dies. Which is the blue jumper with the white the collar. The jumper with the collar. And then you think of mm-hmm. Bill, who's wearing uh, denim. Bill is just kind of wearing like, yeah, she's wearing t-shirt denim. and denim. Yeah. I don't really think about Bill that much. I sort of forget it's about... It's a shame because, again, we'll get to that in series 10. <laughs> Um, the bill was great, which I was really surprised about. But there are, it, we'll get, we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah, like Rose, Rose has got a very default skin. That grey top she wears in oh, it's the first two episodes. Rose's... There's that, and then she wears that. She wears a punky fish red hoodie. Oh my god, yeah, punky fish, punky fish. I know. What a throwback. Here we are talking about clothes. <laughs> We're like barely <laughs> into this damn episode. But yeah, Charles Dickens, played by uh, Simon Callow who is a very uh, very established actor, but also someone who is actually super in, super down with Charles Dickens. <laughs> Don't um, say down. <laughs> he's super, super down, down. down with no, Charles Dickens. No, you're not cool. Fanatic. Shut you up. You can't see me, but I'm flipping gang signs and all sorts oh, right now. Please be quiet. No, stop. I'm so cool. He's <laughs> it's down, so awful. He's down, <laughs> he's down with the Dickens. <laughs> But like he he's done so much work on Charles Dickens. He's portrayed him multiple times. And then here he is in Doctor Who playing the man himself, uh, like live action in and then getting to fight aliens. And mm-hmm. as Amy's already said, the best thing about him is the fact that he goes through this journey that sort of Scrooge goes through as well, this sort of denial, acceptance, and then sort of this this new lease of life, even though he dies a year later, uh in in reality. Lol spoilers. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, spoilers for somebody who died like a hundred and what something 50 years ago, years ago. Uh, 140 years ago um, who knows maths yeah uh, like it, it, he's a fantastic character and going back through it I didn't realise how much dialogue was spent 
of him just wrapping his head around all of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know he was there, and I know that he's the one who eventually, like, saves the day, because he's the guy that comes up with the idea of flooding yeah. him with gas and you suck out all the gals. But I never really remembered about the fact that he was so against everything, and yet he was still so fascinated by all of it. And how This, this episode is very dialogue-heavy. You don't is. really realise. Like, but it's, it's not exposition, but yeah. it's like... Yeah, it's, it's more it's, of a it's more of a character study than exposition. Mm. Exposition would be just be the doctor saying like everyone shut up, listen oh, to yeah, me. No, 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 yeah, no, it's we not. Bring up exposition. his chair and let me explain to you why the gas and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. We hear the exposition is told through through the doctor, through the Gelf, mm-hmm. through Gwyneth, um, even with just explaining herself how she why she can see the future, how she knew the doctor wanted two sugars with her tea, how she knew that Rose's yeah. dad was dead, and all that sort of thing. Um, but so much of the episode is built built upon Charles Dickens coming to terms with what he's seeing and there's this really it's quite a poignant scene where he's seen with um, they, they've been at the theatre he's seen the Gelf fly about the, the auditorium they've uh, he's watched the, the body just fall he's mm-hmm. chased Mr. Sneed through to uh, the uh, Undertakers he's had the doctor explain what a fanatic is uh, which is him. very very funny <laughs> which is a really funny exchange between them i think it's 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 that perfect example of the doctor being like deadly serious deadly serious deadly serious holy crap it's charles dickens let's fangirl a little bit deadly serious again um <laughs> he's seen rose be broken out of a room with two corpses the corpses talk and then the ghosts fly out and then they fall dead again and he's there and he's trying to search around this dead bloke as to where the wires are where the trap door is or something and he just has this sudden realization that he believes that everything he knows is wrong and he just sort of breaks down. And you see it in Sam and Callow's face that he's like, he's mm-hmm. he's really feeling this. As someone who has um, seen or knows the life of Charles Dickens so well, obviously I don't, I can't tell you off the top of my head whether at the end of 1869 he was there like, yes, let's do this, let's do this. And then obviously he dies a year later from whatever. Whether he did have that lease of life or whether he was just channeling that part of Charles Dickens that he knew was so down in the dumps and broken his family of like he's abandoned his family or whatever that was because it's only really touched upon like that scene where he's convinced that because there's something new he doesn't know whether all of his life he's just been so he's been in the shallow end of the pool this entire time Mm -hmm. and he just breaks and it was like that's that's the point when i went holy crap this happened in this episode i don't why do I not yeah, remember you don't this? really remember it because it's kind of it's it's so well done but it's also like a kind of side little expression I mean Simon Callum apparently said that the reason he took the role of Charles Dickens in this episode was because he really appreciated and enjoyed the way they portrayed him in the script and the way they kind of written him um and he wanted to just kind of bring that like to, as to life as best as possible because like you say he's a huge Charles Dickens fanatic shall we say um but yeah so it's kind of like he wanted to make that as poignant as possible and like you said he did a really good job um so yeah it's kind of like a bit of a side to the main story you don't really get but it's it's also very kind of reminiscent of um van gogh in the later episode with matt smith and all that sort of stuff it's the kind of first time you get that like how the doctor can influence the past but how it's sort of like you know telling because even rose says like is that not going to affect anything 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But that's, you know, that's like run it's towards not, the it's end. It's not like a, a, a bastardizing of history. As much as, it, mm. as much as it kind of is, like Charles Dickens against ghosts, Agatha Christie versus a giant wasp, <laughs> and Vincent van Gogh versus whatever the hell it is chasing them through yeah, a field. Yeah, but you've got to have like, you know, you I mean, can yeah, you've, just you've tell have, sort of realistic have history flair. stories because otherwise it'd be boring. <laughs> they were more than happy, because again, this is, that, this is that educational part of Doctor Who that's been bleeding through. Because mm. obviously, um, if you if you are new to the series, uh, it, it, Doctor Who originated as a an educational television show, uh, pitched by uh, Canadian bigwig uh, Sidney Newman. Uh, no bug-eyed monsters, none of that. Which, uh, if you are watching along with this, and you get to an adventure space and time, just you wait. Um, <laughs> like, there's that educational thing bleeding through. It's not like Jodie Whittaker's. Now let's sit and watch this happen because Yay. this is history um it's like they they tell you enough about those cases it's like i feel like i don't know anything about charles dickens i've read like no charles dickens nah i've either. seen all of the musical numerous times but that's about it um i'm not sure that counts it's based on a lot of the twist isn't it yeah but <laughs> <laughs> loosely um but they, they really do lean on the fact that they they don't they don't like i said they don't bastardize the character the people mm. the historical figures they don't mess that around too much uh, even if you see Winston Churchill approving the use of Daleks, like it's still Lil. Winston Churchill. When you look at something like, as an example of a of, of bastardized characterization in history, look at something like The Greatest Showman. As good mm. as The Greatest Showman is, as much as I love it, and the fact it's that I recently tush. I recently <laughs> watched a video that was put up on the What Culture Main channel in which has The Greatest Showman in it, and Jules name drops me like three times. Um, the, the representation of P.T. Barnum in that is so off. Oh, it's, it's so, far so wrong. He basically kept everyone asleep. Because he was, yeah, he was an he was an oppressive, abrasive, horrible yep. man, and yet you've got like sexiest man alive, Hugh Jackman, making him all smiles, <laughs> all smiles and abs. But you know, yep. in reality, that wasn't the case. Whereas in this, they're like, this was Charles Dickens. He was a broken man. This was Van mm-hmm. Gogh. He was a broken man. This is Agatha Christie. She's gonna. She be, was alright. She's gonna be hella broke very soon. <laughs> Like they don't, they don't 
they don't mess around with that and I love that about they don't sugarcoat Doctor Who. it they don't even when you look at something like Rosa in series 11 mm. as much as the whole the Doctor Who part of the plot was complete rubbish trash the, but then you sort of but then you say that but then you look back through all the kind of like key i mean like a giant bloody alien wasp that's not exactly like no no i know i know it. i mean i don't mean it's like i don't mean kind of like i don't mean like the plot itself like no you just the mean idea like, of um there being a big wasp because that's doctor who it's more the fact that that whole sci-fi side of rosa just wasn't really there good. it was more just of a <laughs> let's go back and see a revolution mm. in, in in like black history in like, action yeah let's see this happen and that's great and it was you know again we'll get to this in series 11 God, like, yeah, we're that was done so well <laughs> but the whole sci-fi element was really a bit shabby and the unquiet dead i think is really good it's not like the most incredible thing the idea of the gelf tricking uh gwyneth and the doctor to think that we're we need to be saved and to be honest they do like the, when they yeah. talk about the time war and their their physical forms being taken away and so on and so forth that does happen that's a genuine oh, yeah, it's all thing true. but their approach of we just let us get out of our world wherever we're coming from uh, and the doctor's like we'll take you off somewhere else even though they never say yes okay doctor let's do that the doctor mm, just the sort of blindly he well, sees he, always just he sees the chance trusts, to save a species he? but it's also because the time war like when they have the seance the time war is mentioned and you see rose look at the doctor and the doctor's sort of there sheepishly mm. looking back like he feels a sense of of uh of guilt towards why the yeah. Gelf were responsibility were responsibility that's the word he feels that hence why he goes ahead with their with their plan but obviously but also they, i mean the doctor just kind of always like blindly gives them a, like i mean in the first in the nesting consciousness he's sort of like i want to give them a chance like i'm not here to kill them yeah. and that's just kind of his thing it's like oh yeah i'll give you a chance i believe you you're in pain you need help yes yeah. i will try and help you it's almost like his um because obviously you know he's fresh out the time war at this point uh, as we discuss, and you, as as we always say, you will you will hear more about the time more as the series goes on, all the way up to the day of the Doctor. Um, he any chance he gets to feel like he can redeem himself, he'll take it. Hence, mm-hmm. why the most basic sob story from the Gelf will set him off. He's like Amanda Holden on Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> oh, One lol. day I went to the fridge and we were out of milk, and Amanda Holden's in bits, <laughs> just like oh god, oh golden buzzer. But also, the thing is, do you not like? think that because obviously the girls are kind of like seers if it were mm. um because uh is it is the reason that gwyneth has her powers because the girls, or is it because no of the it's time because rift? she's brought up on the rift again it's it's i don't think it was down to her parents dying i think she maybe when the girls started bleeding through she right. interpreted that as the girls because she says like my angels they're here for me even the doctor's mm-hmm. like they're blatantly aliens from another world but if you want to think they're angels mm-hmm. so you go ahead with the plan to save them then by yeah. all means um so what my point was uh because they are sort of like in the rifty space and they're trying to come through or whatever do you think that they also kind of have access to um the uh like seeing the time war because obviously you say like you know the way i interpreted it the first time i watched mm. it was maybe they weren't involved in the time war and they're just lying because they can see it through the rift and they know that it's something that's important to the doctor or are they actually telling the truth and they were involved in the time war and they need the bodies or are they just doing it to try and inhabit 
the world and take over the world. That's a like, good point. Like, it's that kind of back and forth as to, like, can they just see what unpacked? Because Gwyneth could see that the Doctor wanted two sugars in his coffee without him asking for it. She could see that Rose's Doctor was dead without her telling her. So is it because the girls are part of the time rift that they can see the time war and they're just using that to, put, like, appeal to the Doctor's good side? I would say or that... guilty side. I think... Um, I think Gwyneth can see through time because mm. she's just going up on the rift, and you know, as as we know from Torchwood, more, most more than anything, uh, stuff falls through, stuff bleeds through, mm-hmm. and I think just because she's been there this entire time, it's not like there's nobody else who's uh, grown up in the rift. Like if that were the case, then Mister Sneed might hear something. But then again, uh, she Mister Sneed has had Gwen since uh, Gwyneth since she was twelve. So she, and oh, we right. don't, and we don't know how old she is in the episode, but I want to say she's in her twenties. I'm presuming something like um, that. So she's been there a long time, and we don't know how long Mister Sneed's been there, but maybe it's like a younger mind, a more malleable mind that's seen or heard stuff from the rift, mm-hmm. and hence why she's managed to see and hear all the, or she's connect. I think it's because she's connected to the rift. If she comes into contact with someone, the rift will go, "Oh, hang on a minute, this is this is Rose Tyler. She's from 2005." Blah 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 blah. Uh, and for some reason she knows about the doctor's tea uh habits like um <laughs> as for the gelf i think their story about becoming gaseous forms might be true yeah because probably. if they were coming to earth uh, if they've been gaseous forms their entire time then they know how to control themselves yeah surely true. a species that, that didn't have any control over their physical form they wouldn't have survived we don't mm-hmm. know how old the how old the gelf are they might be a really new species for all we know. Yeah. But I think the idea that the, the time war tore them apart uh, makes a lot of sense and as to yeah, why they want to true. escape because, you know, we know as time goes on just how big of a kerfuffle <laughs> for an apt of word the time war was mm. and how many species died or were affected by it. So I think that the whole approach of the Gelf of being gaseous and wanting to find new physical forms was true but the actual yeah, probably but obviously they still had malicious intent for the human race because okay. like look this is our way through let's just do it you know you could you can offer all the the good in the world like you could be the nicest person in the world let a bloke who lives on this not to make a gross generalization but if there was a bloke who lived on the street who you got to know you could let him into your home be the nicest all you like but they could still nick stuff and run off again mm. you're opening yourself up to that if that would happen and that's what happens with the gelf so I think it's just a more malicious side. They saw the opportunity of look, we can, we can, we could also just be really thankful, but we could also milk this. So yeah. I'm guessing oh, that's yeah, the absolutely. that's the approach that they took. But I think the idea that they were indeed battered by the time war once they saw how easy it was for the Doctor to fold yeah. to their request. That was their kind of that like, was their oh, like. I know how we can get him. They, they well, don't know that he's. They never refer to the Doctor by name. No. Um, it's quite a rare occurrence in Doctor Who that the uh, the main antagonist isn't aware of the Doctor in any way. Uh, they don't necessarily know that he is someone who fought in the Time War. He, is they it don't... rare for them to not know who the Doctor is? Because like, all the examples I can think of in the first series, not many of them know who the Doctor is. Well, uh, I see what you mean. But I mean, nine times out of ten, they at least know that there's this person coming to stop them in the later series i think towards like matt smith's kind of era he gets a little bit big for his britches and he starts saying like i'm the doctor check your records yeah but like in the I, early I th- I think days it's, i think it's more that they don't see the doctor as their 
antagonist mm. like they are just coming through as far as they're aware the doctor's just another human which does go along they you know a lot of episodes play along with the idea that they don't realize the doctor's who the doctor is this ancient time lord warrior mm. like and and the gelva are completely unaware of that like genuine like i don't even know whether the doctor says to them i'm the doctor i no, can I help don't, like this literally doesn't he's just no. kind of i think he's just kind of playing off Gwyneth so they, they don't Gwyneth know that like and they, they just see this human who can believe what he's seeing and they're like cool 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 he's he's allowing us to do this let's just us. let's go nuts so i think that's what that's what happens with the gelf i think because there's no more information about the gelf because they, this is the no. only time they ever appear uh and they they have a pretty convincing story and now that we've been and we've seen the time war we know that the idea that they can be ripped from their physical forms, we know how devastating the time war could be. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Yes. Even yes, though it does. they're bastards. <laughs> which is a. So, where did we get to in the plot? Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, after I know. Charles Dickens and Doctor have a conversation and he's looking for all the strings on the dead people and yeah, he realizes so- that there's more to life than he. Well, does he realize at that point or. Well, he sort of does. He does, he does. I think the doctor's sort of like, look. You know, uh, you, no, it's not that point. He experiences it during the seance when he actually finally believes it because he's, he's still like, a bit he's still a bit unsure. But this is when the doctor miss. realizes that Gwyneth has some kind of power because the Rose is talking to her about boys and how Gwyneth says to her that she realizes like she's from far away and the way mm-hmm. things you, the way you do things there's metal boxes and metal birds with people in them and your dad's dead. Lol you know <laughs> oops that kind of thing and the doctor realizes that she knows something but i think the doctor could tell again when when rose is confronting sneed about groping oh, which her is a and great stuff. scene fantastic and the doctor just stood there with a face like Massive grinning grin away on his face like you just go, like girl. you go girl slap him about a bit come on he's a bloke from 1869 who's a bit of a perv um and you know again as we said gwyneth gives him his tea and says two sugars just how you like it and the doctor doesn't say anything. He doesn't mention it again. He, just, he doesn't turn to Rose and say, she realized I like two sugars in my tea, which wouldn't have been a bad line, but it's more of no, a... It, but it, I it love gives the, the way they it do gives it. gives the audience that you work this out. It's mm. ob- I mean, I, I say that. It's obvious that we know that she's got it because the first time you hear it is when you hear Sneak go, use the scent. But it's kind of like when it's working out alongside the doctor is kind yeah. of like you just see him look at her and it's this kind of intriguing half smile of like, oh, I've got your number. I know yeah. what's going Something's on Something's on here. And the doctor realizes in full swing when Gwyneth outright says to Rose, like, I can't help it. I just mm-hmm. I just can see forward. And obviously she can kind of control it uh, somewhat. Maybe it's just a, a curiosity thing. The fact mm-hmm. that she can see into this dead woman's mind and know where she's going. She meets a new person who's a bit odd. Let's look into her head and see where she's from. And lo and behold, she's from, you know, 200 years in my future. Or, yeah. no, 150 years in my future. Who knows? So, <laughs> I, and I, that's, I think that's really cool. But yeah, the, the Doctor has this seance. And obviously Dickens is like, ah, oh, this is all rubbish. Mm-hmm. So fantastic phrases of 1869, like poppycock. Not gonna lie, that would be how I would be in a seance as well. Like, nah, oh, totally. this ain't real. Let's any, be any of this uh, seances, <laughs> uh, palm readers, anything like that. I'm just like, yeah, all right, all right. So I can't. I can understand Charles Dickens very, uh, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, because as the doctor says to me, like, you're a really smart bloke. You're a really smart bloke. You know that you can believe this if you really just let yourself. 
and okay. obviously with the Gelf actually appearing, he's like, yep, yeah, okay, cool. I'm, yeah, I mean, oh, okay, I can't really I'm deny sold. this anymore. <laughs> like, this is definitely a thing. And as soon as that clicks in his head, he becomes such... He, he, he literally does become full of beans, mm. and he's a new character almost, because when they realise that uh, this is when the Gelf obviously explained to the Doctor, or through Gwyneth, that the Time War tore them apart, and they can make the rift and save us and blah 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 and they go to the morgue happy place and uh oh joy gwen's under the arch gwen under the arch sorry and <laughs> couldn't uh, have been a gazebo could it <laughs> why gazebo just because it's such I, a modern thing i know that a gazebo has many different names when i think of a gazebo I think of the big green thing you stick up in your back garden and you sit under a, and you have a when barbecue. When you're having a barbecue and it's <laughs> a gazebo and it starts pissing it down no but mm-hmm. there are you can have gazebos that are like um posh like like solid ones that you have in your really posh oh, like garden like big tent kind of nah gazebo's the cheapy crappy green yeah the cheap crap you get from Argos that's what I <laughs> well, think I'm, I would imagine that's but what then again, <laughs> but then again if I were out in a gazebo with a hot dog and it's pissing it down because it's Britain I'd rather be there than in a morgue yeah quite so do you know what Rose <laughs> you can see our point you have your gazebo um <laughs> And so they, they, Gwyneth is uh, is taken over by the Gelf to let them through, and they do. They come through her mouth and stuff. It's all a bit creepy. And obviously, as soon as uh, the, the the head Gelf realizes that uh, they're through, she goes all, "Oh, look! She's gone from blue to red. It's proper Star Wars dark oh. side and light." Oh no, she's evil. Oh no, she's going to bring carnage to. I mean, Earth. it's the best way to kind of. You know, represent it. She's a gaseous object. Would you expect her to kind of like do turn from like blue to lighter blue? Like you know, she's <laughs> orange is probably the best way to portray well, it's that. It's a violent, warm, hot color, isn't it? So yeah, it yeah. makes perfect sense. Um, but so they they come in and the Mister Sneed, poor bloke, a bit of a gropey man, uh, gets uh gets his head his neck snapped. Yeah, which is all by fun. the rest of the corpses that uh, show up because obviously the Gelf have turned up. They're going to kill the human race, take their bodies, and become the the Gelf race. I I guess in decomposing bodies, which I'm sure they can't keep clean, so they will have, they'll eventually run out of space, run out of bodies. Yeah, but uh, that's a, a continuity thing that doesn't happen and not really worth worrying about. But um, the Doctor and Rose uh, lock themselves behind the gate. Charles Dickens manages to get out. Obviously, Mister Sneed is killed, that's, and that's the other thing. It's kind of like I'm not sure whether he actually like he does obviously he sees them he sort of is like yeah i kind of have to believe that they're there now but even then he's still kind of like hesitant because when they're fighting for their lives and they've locked themselves in the cage he runs away and he's sort of like no i can't do this i cannot believe that this is true like i just can't and yet it takes him like a minute or two like of walking out and sort of leaving and then seeing them follow him where he's like oh god this like you know and it then he real, sees them and then go he realizes the because she's yeah. like oh the atmosphere is hostile because there's not enough like you know, whatever Gas. it is they yeah. need to sustain them and then he's like oh 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 i know how to fix this and that's when he becomes sort of on board because he then realizes that he's smart enough to work his way around like even the stuff that he doesn't know he's still smart enough to like accept it and work it out and when that idea comes to him he's like do you know what actually maybe this isn't so bad that i don't know things because i will work it out eventually like yeah. i thought i knew everything there was to know about the world but actually there is still so much more to learn and that's a thrilling concept so that's when he kind of accepts it and goes back in and is like i know how to fix it and then starts ripping the gas pipes out and yeah. blah 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 and i love that sequence of uh him 
tearing out the gas and mm. all the gelb coming being sucked back out into the open. What I love is that he stood there and he goes, I do hope that this theory will be uh, validated yeah. soon. <laughs> when they realise that he's like potentially screwing the plan, they all turn and look at him he's like, oh yeah, crap, I might get eaten. Oh no. Uh, and thankfully that doesn't happen to him. I, I love the fact that when he's running about doing all the gas stuff, he's like, Doctor, is it correct that uh, rather than just saying, the gas, it's going to do this, he's like, yeah, actually, yeah. excuse me, am I right in thinking? It's like, it's so polite. And I mm. love it. Um, but yeah, that works and they get pulled out and they manage to escape. But obviously the only way that, uh, like obviously the doctor's telling Gwyneth to, to let send them back, but she's like, I don't have the power to do that. Uh, still conscious still talking mm-hmm. and she realizes you know gas plus fire equals kaboom kaboom uh, just look at black widow from the simpsons but um that that is the means of escape it's quite a blunt end but mm-hmm. it works like it's it's it is it's i think messy. it works because it's not the doctor suddenly saving the day like no yeah I, like he manages like well really he doesn't do anything he just kind of sits there and accepts death like whereas charles dickens and gwen are the ones well gwyneth sorry are the ones who like really kind of come through and save the day so i think that's why it works as kind of like it's not so much a blunt ending because you're led to it quite smoothly like the fact that the doctor realizes she's been dead for like five minutes by the time she sort of offers to save them is like you know, it, it would be a blunt end if it was the doctor suddenly going, oh, I know how to fix this, like all of a sudden, but he just doesn't. And he, yeah. it's, that's why it works so it's good. well. I think it's because it's not like this great plan to do this, mm. that and the other. And let's put this, so that we've, we've seen this, this happened. Let's go and you go back to that place and use that to do this. It's just a case of, okay, let's blow them up. And this is, I sort of, again, I kind of forget about this, but then as much as Rose watched Cassandra die due to not having her surgeons with her, um, this is a point when the doctor willingly lets somebody else take the proverbial bullet to save the world. I mean, because the doctor says, like, very much, like, give me the matches, I will do it. And the doctor does this so much mm -hmm. over the course of uh, um, the series, uh, Forest of the uh, Dead, you know river song put me in your place i'll do it or um uh donna in uh journey's end yeah, yeah put me in her place i'll do anything whatever mm-hmm. he will happily take that bullet but i think when when gwyneth is like no i'll be with my parents because you know she says early in the episode i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to being they're with waiting them again. for me i'm gonna look forward to Ooh, being with them again which is a really <laughs> i say foreshadowing but it's also just like that that era that time of when death was more accepted because I think oh no absolutely back then but... you know death is death is coming for people a lot sooner than it is now mm. um but i mean in terms do, of just know, old age in general average living as a uh, and so on. as a plot device <laughs> as a plot device yeah so this is when obviously the doctor you know rose has this weird like motherly approach to gwyneth like she does so like she says oh no you can do better than mr sneed and so on and so forth you know go chase boys look at bums and things <laughs> and she's the same with like when when Gwyneth has done the seance and the doctor's like right this is what we're gonna do and Rose is like no you're not doing it and it's like well then who put you in charge Rose like why are you I mean I understand becoming a motherly figure like this is the first uh woman apart from Raffalo who just kind of threw her off a bit being blue Mm. uh that she's actually been able to resonate with as another human female in this kind of visit she knows that she's in a very um oppressive male dominant uh, society as much as that's not really played up upon in this uh, episode apart from Mr. Sneed being a gropey bombhole but um like she has this motherly approach and she really doesn't want the doctor to let her kill herself to save 
the world and kill the girl at the same time but mm. that's kind of a harsh reality you have to get over with the doctor and as yeah much and also, as but also a, the thing is the doctor does give, does give gwyneth a choice exactly yeah. like he says you don't have to and rose even says you don't have to but she sort of says no i want to like mm. and that's you know he's not exactly letting her take the bullet because he doesn't know what's going to happen like he doesn't know that gwyneth is going to die he just sort of thinks that like she'll have the power to bring them through and that'll be that so yeah you know it's not that he lets her take the bullet per se because obviously she's already dead by the time that it even becomes a question like he's still but he doesn't know that he's still willing to sort of take her place so i wouldn't say it's so much like you know taking the bullet and letting her do it but yeah i get your point (laughs) (laughs) yeah so gwyneth explodes poor girl we have a lovely uh, sad face a very lovely flames in the windows that look far too big uh, oh yeah, the CGI I did. So I was like, "Oh, those off. flames, though." <laughs> uh, again, budgetary constraints, and you know the real, the real, uh, the reality of uh, 2005 TV CGI wasn't obviously great back then. Mm. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it does the job. The jankiness of it is is what kind of gives of the, the charm. It, it's part of Doctor Who's charm. Do- Doctor Who CGI has only really been like great, in my opinion, in the most recent two series when they got DNEG to mm. do it. Um, though the mill uh, do the effects pretty dang well but yeah the the, the Sneed's Undertaker's explodes because the place is flooded with gas Gwyneth kills all the uh, the Gelf and there's this love I love the shot of um, the Charles the Doctor and Rose as the camera just sort of pulls back and looks at them just stood there watching this burning building just like holy crap that just happened and this was like that's the start of the fully explosive like approach to to doctor the, the standard stuff that you get with the doctor and rose like yeah, the, doctor the, blowing of, up, um... the doctor blowing up henrix in episode one it was it's the doctor doing his own thing mm-hmm. but this is where it's like okay things are gonna get explodey and we get a lot of explodey this is kind uh, of like the, the standard progresses. trope being laid out now isn't it yeah so and and then obviously as we said the that charles dickens has this new lease of life after his sort of existential crisis with realising that the stuff he's seeing isn't an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all real. Uh, and he's, he's so full of beans and he's looking forward to writing about these blue ghosts. And the Doctor's there, like, really excited for him. I think in that's because he knows, his... though, isn't it? But he knows, yeah. And, you know, Ro- after the, after they jump in their shed, down, boy. You know, it's not just me and this hot girl in a in a very close-knit shed. Hello, I'm the doctor. This is my shagging shed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Here he sees the TARDIS disappear and he just laughs. Mm. And I love that. Like he has, the, you know, he, he says to the doctor, oh, I'm full of beans. I'm going to go uh, reconcile my family and do all of this. And, you know, Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless And you have everyone. that lovely moment of him sort of asking the doctor, like, do my books live on? Do my stories mm. kind of... And the doctor's like, yeah, forever. Like literally forever. And, you know, as people always say, that moment of Vincent and the doctor with Bill Nighy uh, mm-hmm. where you see him in the gallery and he's crying and it's like they're, they're the things that make the historical episodes of Doctor Who so damn good yeah when you see when they when they, when they do let that little bit slip about the mm-hmm. future of their craft and how like Bill Nighy says that Van Gogh was the greatest artist who ever lived and you know your books will live on forever and so on and so forth I, I just it's so it's so beautiful and again mm. I, I must I, I'd love to know what was going through Simon Callow's mind when he read the script and when he actually did get to do those takes oh yeah it must have been fu- like absolutely incredible really Charles Dickens yeah because you know he, he could easily put himself in his shoes because he knows like everything about him mm. so to have to be able to be 
to be able to be Charles Dickens, to know that his work goes on mm. to become the the literature sort of god colossus it is today um he's probably the only actor that's played charles dickens that's had the chance to do that mm. it's same with the guy who plays uh who plays van gogh which i can't mm. remember his name no me um, either not right now but but you know that must be an amazing experience for someone who who's dedicated so much of their life to to study yeah. the character of charles dickens but yeah as you say when he uh when the tardis disappears and he just laughs because I, I, I was I forgot how that episode ended and I was sort of expecting him to be like oh my god where's it gone but like it's just kind of plays up on that acceptance that he's then yeah. sort of found is like oh no actually this is just life now like all these wonderful unknown things like boxes disappearing and ghosts appearing and I'm just going to accept it now and go off and be me and you know to think about it he probably doesn't ever experience anything like that again no he but, won't like you know it just kind of gives him and I think they summarise that really well at the I end the, of when he just kind of walks off and laughs i think it's really pretty <laughs> i think the best way i can i can encapsulate that ending for charles dickens is to quote jim carrey's dr robotnik in the sonic movie oh jesus please which don't. is i wasn't expecting that but i was expecting not to expect that so it doesn't count like he has this approach of like you know what i i knew something was coming i wasn't expecting it to be that but something was gonna happen yeah so and yeah given that you just got into a shed <laughs> and again, like that, that harsh reality of the character, both explaining that his his very sort of depressive downturn during that time, being away from his family, being alone, no no lady friend, no wife with him, no family with him, to being so full of beans again and excited to get back to writing, excited to get back to his family, excited to get back to the world, only for the doctor to tell Rose, you know, he's going to die. He dies a year later. Next year, in like a week, it's the year he dies. And there's nothing we can do about that. This mm. hasn't changed history. Nothing has changed enough for him. He never publishes this book about the blue, whatever it was. He said that the, 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 the blue ethereals, I think, ethereals he called them or something, something yeah. like that. He never does that. And it's, again, it's the same with like the Christie. You know, tomorrow morning she wakes. She's she she's found outside a hotel with no memory of what happened. Mm-hmm. No, like just mind wiped, gone. Like that harsh reality. And it's the same with Van Gogh. He ends up still killing himself in like, you know, how he always did. Exactly. So it's like there's there's always this very bleak approach to it. As much as there is this sort of terrifying, bouncy, ridiculous plot, there is still this grounded reality of of history. And Mm -hmm. sometimes Doctor Who doesn't really hit those notes in the past. But sometimes they really do. Yeah. And Unquiet Dead is one of those I think that really does. But it's it's very much a forgotten episode. Of I think, yeah, one. that's the problem because I think it's quite a credit to Mark Gates's like, writing. Yeah. But it's, you know, like, if you'd have said what episodes did Mark Gates write in Doctor Who, I wouldn't have said that the Unquiet Dead was one of them. Like, it just I'm just getting really a, I'm just going to get a mind. list up of what And I always wrote. kind of... Uh, for some reason, I always confuse the Unquiet Dead with... Um, the Shakespeare episode from the Shakespeare Martha code. and yeah. David. I always confuse the two because they're both, in my head, Aesthetically, similar. they're very similar. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I, I always that. picture the theatre scene in The Unquiet Dead as Shakespeare, not Charles Dickens. Yeah, And so I always kind of like, oh, that was the Charles Dickens episode, not the Shakespeare episode. The Shakespeare episode was with the witches and all yeah. that stuff. But, like, I've got... Because I've got a list now of... Uh, of the nine episodes that Mark Gatiss has written. So only wrote. nine? Yeah. Alongside wow. uh, An Adventure in Space and Time, of course, but that doesn't yeah. count. Uh, he wrote The Unquiet Dead, The Idiot's Lantern, which is in series two, which is the, oh, the, uh, the He wire. wrote The Idiot's Lantern. Ooh. Yeah. 
uh, Victory of the Daleks, which we don't talk about. Uh, Night Terrors. Was that Terrors, the one? Victory of the Daleks. Is that the iPod Nano Daleks? Oh, those the uh, Paradigm Daleks. Yeah, uh, uh, Night Terrors, which was quite, which was quite creepy. Night Terrors. The one with the doll's house. Uh, oh, which I was love quite that spooky. One. It was Is that ve- the one with the kid who's technically an alien? Oh, uh, such a it, good remi- it reminds me of. Um, it's a very Moffat like series. It's a very Russell C Davies era Moffat episode. Mm-hmm. It's very reminiscent of that. So that was good. Cold War, which is one of the worst episodes of New. Oh, Who. is that the one with the the submarine Ice Warrior on the submarine? And- oh, poor the, cri- oh, no. the Crimson Aura, which I thought was quite good, but you don't remember at all, do you? The Crimson no. Aura, the one where they turn people pink and there's Mr. Pink on the old lady. Never mind. Uh, Robot Sherwood, which is pretty bad. Mm. Sleep No More, which I think is very underrated. And then Empress of Mars was which like, one's eh. sleep? You're going to have to literally remind me what Sleep No More are. is the found footage one with the it's sound men. The found footage, where it's like all CCTV cameras and things. Um, it's a, no, it's a I sty- think I've erased that from my it's brain. It's a style well. of filmmaking, and I, I, I think. Sleep oh, no, no I know, more, I know what it is. I, I think just... Sleep No More is a, is it's a, it's a Capaldi Clara episode. Um, I think it's, I think it's quite underrated. I'm looking forward to seeing that one again. Uh, and then Empress of Mars, which was the Ice Warriors again, which again mm. was it was better than Cold War, but it wasn't great. So I, I think Unquiet Dead is one of the, you know, the I'd say top, top three of, of Mark Gatiss's Mark uh, written episodes. So, Which is weird because his Sherlock episodes are like mint. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he wrote Hounds of Baskerville, which is probably the scariest episode mm-hmm. of Sherlock. Uh, and he did write some pretty good episodes. Some of them not brilliant. He wrote The Six Thatchers, uh, which was I can't a bit, remember, but I can barely remember Sherlock, bit, lol. Yeah, it's a bit rubbish. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Well, I think yeah between us we agree that uh, Unquiet Dead is probably one of the most underrated episodes of series one again it's not what people talk about as much as it's got mm. this fantastic character study of, of of Charles Dickens and it links into the the future of, of Cardiff basically mm. uh, with the Rift and also with Gwyneth oh yeah because that obviously comes back later in the series doesn't it yeah the Rift is a, is a persistent thing again the entirety of sort of the, the how they can keep Torchwood as a series going mm. Uh, when they did the it's Torchwood series. It's because of series. the Rift in Cardiff. It's because of the Rift, um, which if, obviously, like I said, we're not covering Torchwood on this podcast, but if you do, if you are keen on, if you're watching Doctor Who and thinking, oh, this is good, it's a bit it's a bit too kiddie-friendly for me, go watch Torchwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of goes too much the other way. It's bloody <laughs> terrifying, Torchwood. Oh, God. Um, but like, yeah, there, there's so much that's set up in this episode, whether that was def- specifically Mark Gatiss, because the Rift is, the Rift is mentioned again, there was another mm. story that takes place in in series one that's oh heavily, absolutely it probably would heavily, have been a Russell T Davis like plot arc kind of thing that yeah Mark exactly Gatiss there is a, there just is kind a plot of like arc. incorporated and, and like I said with production being in Cardiff it makes it easy to film on their doorstep to say yeah. yes we're in Cardiff um, so there's a lot about Unquiet Dead that really introduces a lot and sort of the Rose seeing the uh, more kind of asshole side of the Doctor like mm-hmm. you know um, well I, I mean she's kind of is. seen it once. Uh, with when he lets Cassandra blow up, but yeah, it's when I think it's he's... more that like she's she's chatting back to him, and the Doctor's like, "How about you shut up?" Because basically, she's saying like, "You can't let them use the dead because they were people once." Like, you know, it's just not fair. We should respect them. And then um, he says, "Do you carry a donor card?" And yeah. she's like, "Yeah, but that's completely besides the point." And he's like, "Yeah, it's a moral difference. So you either get used to it or shut up. Like, or you go know, home. or go that's home." It. Yeah, and exactly it's it. kind of like you know that kind of moral again that kind of moral ambiguity that you you don't see i don't know i wouldn't say it's moral ambiguity i think it's quite 
sturdy kind of morals it's like he does what needs to be done to help people survive but you like you don't find him deciding it, just to just to kill it yeah it doesn't out, he's, out he doesn't gate. sort of outright go no i'm not killing anybody like, or like yes i'm gonna kill everyone he just kind of does what like is done and it's sort of like you know we none of us can say in that situation what we would have done it's just yeah. a different take on like you know the decisions that were made by him by gwyneth by rose you know we've all got different moral standpoints but i think that's something that he's done really well with Eccleston's doctor is later on they have a very no violence no this no that and that's obviously very specific to each doctor but yeah. it's he doesn't ever say i don't promote this or i stand against that like he's just kind of goes as he, he just, goes he just does what yeah he which i think does. is what works so well with his character and his depending on which end of the spectrum it is because when we get to episode six we see him going the other extreme yeah what he feels he should do Mm -hmm. but that is for episode six but for now that has been episode three of escaping custodius the unquiet dead which Mm -hmm. again I think it's really underrated and I've really enjoyed watching that again. Yeah, seeing, it was really good. Seeing Charles Dickens and, and reading his character more so than I ever have before. Uh, mm. Which I I have got so I've got a new huge appreciation for that episode, even though I, I've said a million times I love series one to bits. Beginning to end, I think it's perfect, but mm. The Unquiet Dead is like, okay, I've always seen this as a bit of filler. Well, not filler, it's, but it's like uh, it's not it's well, not Well we're like... still in the early stages of being kind of led into Doctor Who. Like I said, this yeah. is kind of where the standard trope gets established in this episode because episode one, um is kind of like you know the introduction to who the doctor is it's a very different it's told from the companion's perspective episode yeah. two is very like here's what we can do we can go to the ends of the universe if you really want to like you know this is and it, you do have a bit of like that kind of oh there's a threat oh we're gonna solve the threat but it's it's not quite you're still learning along the way whereas this is kind of getting more into the swing of things now so they can just kind of start the episodes rolling like yeah. the first time we get the cold opening this is like very here's the episode here's what we're setting up and you're on your way it's it's leading you in less but it's also still kind of like taking you along holding your hand a little bit but they're starting to let go a bit now which i quite like yeah so yeah we're we're kind of firmly in the the deep end of doctor who as it Mm -hmm. were so next week uh we're going to be heading back to earth as it seems to be that london has been invaded Ooh, Ooh, the first the first two-parter of uh, i thought it was a two-parter yeah aliens of london is next week and then world war three the week after so yeah the first two-parter <laughs> of new who is coming up but uh if you've been here the entire time and listened to us ramble on about weird zombies in 1869 cardiff thank you i hope you've uh, enjoyed listening to this episode of escaping custodians please let us know what you think of it uh, either in the comments if you're on the youtube version or you can find us on social media you can tweet us at who culture because i got that going again yay, yay! finally uh, good old account that's not been used in five years that we've had at the company i've got it all going again so you can tweet us at who culture you can tweet us with the uh hashtag escaping custodians again thank you all of you who have been tweeting us with your feedback or your praise or your criticisms yeah, or whatever for the good comments so far thank been you really lovely if you've got any questions you want to ask us if you watch the episode like like potentially like if you're like maybe a week ahead of us because i know some people are um, and you've got any questions about the episodes we're about to watch so if you have a question you've watched Aliens of London and you want to let us know what you think of it before we record on a Sunday uh, please tweet it at us at who yeah because we'd like to answer some questions hashtag and stuff. escaping Custerberus, or you can find me on Twitter at pickupchangetoe and you can find me at 
Ames underscore Elizabeth. I nearly forgot to, my own Twitter had to, name had to there. to think there for a second. <laughs> like, but yeah, if, if you've got any name? questions about those episodes specifically, be it a plot point, be it a character, just tweet us. Ask us a question. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be great to be able to do a question from you guys regarding that episode every week. And I think we might even do like a series wrap-up podcast as well. And if you've got questions about series one, or whatever series we're covering yeah. at the time then send them into us or even sure if you're we'll not re-watching and you just remember certain episodes and you want us to discuss certain points or like yeah. anything or if really. you're watching it for the first time and you've watched aliens of london and gone i don't understand what the hell happened there and you tweet as a question regarding it we'll either tell you to wait and see what happens in the next episode or we can answer it for you so mm-hmm. please do come and find us on there or again comment them comment them below but if you tweet them at us there's a bigger chance we'll see it but uh, again thank you all so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of escaping disturberus Uh, My name has been Rich. I've been Amy. And we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.